Welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart Podcast. I am your host, Karen Litzy, and I want to thank you all for taking the time out of your day to listen to today's podcast all about sex. This is Sex Part 2. If you missed Sex Part 1, then I suggest that you go back and listen to Episode 206. You can find that episode on iTunes, or you can go to podcast.healthywealthysmart.com or SoundCloud, or Stitcher, or iHeartRadio, or Google Play. So it's everywhere. In that first episode, I was joined by Dr. Sarah Haig and Dr. Sandy Hilton. We had a couple glasses of wine and thought it would be a great idea to have a talk about sex, so we did it, and it was great, and people loved it. And we realized that there was still so much more to talk about. So here we are, sex, episode two. And in this episode, I am again joined by Dr. Sarah Haig and Sandy Hilton, and we have special guests this time, Dr. Jason Falvey. So how did this one come about? Well, we knew we wanted to do another talk on sex because there was still so much more to talk about, and we were all in Chicago for Neil O'Connell's fabulous course on translating the research into your everyday practice. If you haven't taken that course, people, go out and take it. Neil O'Connell is great. He makes this subject, which can be a little dry, a lot of fun and easy to understand. So I highly suggest you take his course, and that's with Neil O'Connell. So what we decided to do this time is we went out for dinner, we got some wine, and Sarah Haig was generous enough to let us use her back deck uh, in Chicago uh, at her home to record this. So we all sat down, and we had a nice glass of wine and recorded Sex Part 2. So in this episode... We're talking about broaching the subject of sex with your patients, recalibrating sex after surgery. We take some common surgeries and tell you how to do it after you have your surgery. Um, The rising rates of sexually transmitted diseases in the older adult population. Jason had some really crazy statistics there. And how to deal with a persistent UTI and things like a bladder diary and going to see your physical therapist and having good conversations with your doctor and therapist, and it's so, so necessary. So this was a great episode. We covered a lot of ground. And before we get to the episode, I want to thank Audible.com for sponsoring today's podcast. So if you want your free download and free month from Audible, then go to audibletrial.com slash healthywealthysmart. They have over 180,000 titles to choose from. Right now, I'm listening to Smarter, Better, Faster from Charles Duhigg. Awesome book. Highly suggested. I'm about halfway through, and it's pretty good. I'm really enjoying it. So again, go to audibletrial.com slash healthywealthysmart and enjoy today's podcast with Sandy, Sarah, and Jason, Sex Part 2, starting right now. Hey, everyone. Welcome back for part two of our discussion all about sex. The first one we did a couple of months ago at CSM. So if you missed it, it was again with myself, Sarah Haig and Sandy Hilton. And we talked about a lot of different topics surrounding sex at a bar in Disneyland. And so we thought we would kind of do this talk once a season. So that was sort of our spring season and now we're in our summer season and we are doing it again this time we are coming to you from Chicago at a really wonderful course at Entropy with Neil O'Connell who happens to be in our studio audience tonight yay Um, and so I am again joined by Sarah Haig and Sandy Hilton and this time we have a special guest Jason Falvey 
who is joining us. He came in from Chicago. Chicago. We're in Chicago from Denver. So we're going to take some questions from some of the listeners and um, maybe some questions from people here in our audience tonight. So everybody, uh, Sandy, welcome. Welcome back. Always a pleasure. Sarah. Thank you for having us back. And Jason. Glad to be here. Okay, so let's start. So the, one of the first questions was from uh, Susan uh, Clinton. Not that she needs any advice on how to work with uh, people with pelvic issues, but her question was, as a clinician, how do you even start the process of talking about sex with your patients? So I will, Sandy or Sarah, I'll let one of you guys take this question um, first, and then if either of you have something to add, we'll add on to that. Well, I um, am, this is Sandy, I am a very, I call it lazy clinician, but essentially if I don't do things regularly, I forget to do them. So pretty much with every patient I have, regardless of why they're coming in, part of my screening questions is if they have any problems with bowel or bladder function and if they're sexually active and if they have any issues with that. So I just ask everyone. Um, and then it goes from there. I, I can't believe it. I'm the one that's going to be doing this instead of Sandy, but the original Oswestry, <laughs> which everyone is supposed to be using, I believe, with their low back pain patients, which is probably the number one diagnosis we all see, um, even if you're seeing them for someone for something else, um, actually does have a sex question on it. And I would say that is a beautiful segue. Uh, but again, in my patient population, most people are coming in for, um, for pelvic related issues anyway. So it is a pretty natural thing. You know, if they're coming in just for bladder, I'm still going to ask about sexual function and bowel function as well. So, yeah. And what advice would you give, let's say, to a physical therapist who doesn't normally see patients for pelvic issues or bladder or bowel issues? How can, let's say someone's coming in with low back pain. And, and again, like Sandy said, if you don't do it all the time, you don't think to ask. But what if you are a little tentative or what if you're uncomfortable? What advice do you have to give to those therapists who might feel that way? Um, a couple thoughts. One, also the original Oswestry, but two, um, to one, work out why you're feeling awkward. And sometimes what the problem is, is you're not sure what you're going to do with the answer. So my suggestion for that is to figure out one, why you're feeling awkward and address that. But two, work out a nice referral source or even just planting the seed that there's help for this. I'm not, that's not my area. I don't feel comfortable with it, but I know fabulous people in this clinic. I will find you someone to refer you to. I will make sure your doctor knows that this is going on um, and just kind of start to make that connection for them. But I think that awkwardness is usually more a problem of the therapist than of the patient. And if the therapist is awkward, of course the patient's going to be, hmm, that's awkward. And we, and we know that there can be help. So withholding that care is rather cruel. Um, there's networks um, for finding a pelvic health therapist in many countries. Canada has one, the U.S. has one with Find a PT and also the section on women's health has a Find a PT for finding therapists that are, are okay with this. Australia does, the U.K. does, um, or you can always get on Twitter and ask the pelvic mafia because we, we, we know people. Yeah, I've done it twice in this week and within 10 minutes I had two responses of DM me and I'll help you out. 
So, and I think I'm going to speak from the older adult perspective is, you know, a very high percentage of older adults, 40 to 50% over the age of 65 are sexually active, and they don't often get asked about these questions, and they're really uncomfortable bringing it up with primary care physicians. So I think physical therapists working with that population have to be even a little bit more proactive in bringing up these issues and making it a really open environment. And if they're not comfortable talking about sex with an older adult, they really do need to refer or, or get somebody on their staff to talk about it. Okay, that's awesome. That's a great answer. Yeah, there's so much. Um, there's so much that sex is good for, um, cardiovascularly, musculoskeletally. I mean, it's just awesome uh, for so many reasons, mentally. <laughs> that that it's. Um, if we talk about population health and things that keep people moving and happy, <laughs> that's a good one. Yeah. yeah. You know, I talked with you about this a couple weeks ago on your other podcast. Um, Karen and that older adults are often defined by their disability and often if their their disability is limiting their ability to have sexual activity that's going to take a backseat to actual other activities that they're interested in both from the perspective of the therapist and the physicians and I think that's a, a, a concern that I think we need to address. Okay all right so all good advice for you therapists out there who might be a little tentative kind of broaching the subject and asking those questions of your patients of any age. Um, okay, so talking about when to bring up these questions. So one th- another question that I got from a listener was, can you give advice on which positions one sh- can and cannot do after having certain surgeries? So l- we're going to just take some common surgeries here, and I want you guys to tell me, what positions are good and what positions to avoid. So let's start out with a total hip replacement. And, and let's say that total hip replacement is posterior lateral um, approach, a posterior lateral approach to a total hip replacement. How far post up? Um, you are seeing them for their first visit post-surgery. So you are probably seeing them within a day or two of surgery. <laughs> it's been a long time since I worked with a post-op hip replacement patients. Um, most of them, sex is probably not on their mind. Um, and you never I'm, know. I, that's true. That's a really good point. Um, I'm going to be really boring and start to get really broad right off. So um, whatever their surgical restrictions are, that's what you need to adhere to for whatever the time frame is. Now, if... Let's say what are the what are the current restrictions? So I mean, for posterior posterior lateral, it's still the not bringing up to ninety degrees, not crossing midline, and not a lot of internal rotation. But the restrictions aren't as long as they used to be. I mean, it used to be you were several months on those restrictions. Now I'm sure it depends on the surgeon. If you have an anterior approach, you don't have to worry about those restrictions, but you do have to worry about going into too much extension for an anterior lateral approach. So, you don't have to get into the position because people just, actually can't see you because it's a I'm podcast. Saying, Sarah's demonstrating. I'm, I'm just, just say, I'm, I'm just, just saying. I'm just saying. If we think about most of the positions people are in, this is not adduction, not a problem. Um, I'd say they'd have to worry about the 90 degrees at the hip. Um, also, internal rotation would be awkward. <laughs> I thought you were going to be videotaping. No, 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 we're not videotaping. Um, but yeah, so I think that what you would need to do is just be mindful of those and and adapt. So if you're on hands and knees, 
again, you're going to have to watch the 90 degrees at the hip. And if someone was like, I cannot wait, I would maybe help them find a pillow or a bolster that would help keep those hips at 90 degrees or more of flexion. Um, but I don't think adduction and, and, and internal rotation would be a problem. There is a, a resource. I think it depends. I don't know. Well, there's a resource <laughs> for this that um, Holly Herman made. Mm -hmm. um, she's a pelvic health physio. Um, In New York. Yep. And she has a, um, a wonderful pad of exercises. You just like tear it off, hand it to the patient of common um, positions that are safe for different things. It's a little old um, and it's a little conservative. But, but here's my thing with safe. Are we talking safe or comfortable? And the comfortable is, so, so the safe is going to be post-operatively, you have these restrictions for X amount of time. Mm -hmm. um, after that, once they're cleared for no longer having restrictions, mm -hmm. you tell me what you're having trouble with and, and I'm, I'm there to help you. And so as the PT, you might be able to give them advice on different positions. A absolutely, but it's gonna depend on what's hurting them, what's restricting them. Um, what positions they like. Um, yeah. Right, and to do, this sounds very strange, to do this well, you have to not be um, easily embarrassed by your patient telling you what is their favorite position, and you just being a physical therapist and working out the mechanics of that. Um, it's just function. It's, yeah, it's just function. I don't know why we blush when we talk about mm -hmm. it. It's okay. just function. All right. Well, so one thing I've actually talked to my patients about is, you know, when they first start, <laughs> with some of these positions to take the more passive role in some of their early encounters, just to see, kind of feel out and give them a chance to feel out um, how, they're, how they're feeling with it, what the soreness might be. Um, and then they can kind of work up to positions that they're a little bit more active. pleasured by or more active, <laughs> right? But uh, certainly, you know, and, that, and that's a suggestion I've made to patients and certainly haven't demonstrated that <laughs> maybe to the extent that Sarah just did but, <laughs> but that is a suggestion that I usually make uh, well I'm going to throw in there that and and it's funny because so this is crossover to from what we do with our patients who have pain like with penetration with intercourse is that actually the more passive role sometimes can be a little yeah. bit scarier because mm. you're not in control right so if I'm like ooh, I'm not sure about this it's way better for me to be in control of me moving than you moving on me, um, but also to practice. I actually have gotten yoga bolsters out in the clinic and been like, show me where the problem is. So if, if, if you know, it's at adduction. And for anyone coming to yoga at the clinic, it's okay. <laughs> Everyone's dressed, but it's, you know, to kind of get into those positions and see, you know, just like if someone said it hurts when I swing a, a golf club, like mm -hmm. you wanna look at that from a functional standpoint um, and you have to see it and have them do it so they can tell you and you can help them. I've had a lot of these conversations lately in the clinic and talking um, to patients saying that I, I'm apologizing for totally de-romanticizing sex, but breaking it down into the fundamental movements and positions and requirements and, um, and letting them practice the fundamentals individually and then trying to put it together into function. So there's a lot of ways. But I agree with Sarah that sometimes the passive positions are kind of scary because mm -hmm. you're not in control. Mm -hmm. So it's, like you said, it's kind of the same as doing any other functional movement. And so if someone is having a problem with it, if you are the therapist, don't be embarrassed, don't be shy, don't be tentative. Ask them to show you the position that are, that is problematic for whatever that problem is. And then look at it from sort of a, a biomechanical view and 
and try and see what you can do to perhaps make a positive change from that position that is problematic. And if you're not comfortable doing that, please refer them to a pelvic health physio that is mm -hmm. comfortable doing that. Yeah. Okay. So, all right. I mean, granted, we were talking about like a hip replacement. Um, what about a back, a lower back surgery, whether that be, let's say it's a fusion. I don't know. I don't know how many people are still doing that, but let's say you had, you had a, a lower back surgery from a fusion. Um, and you are seeing the patient when they are, whenever they are referred to you, let's say within the first six weeks of surgery, right? I think that's well, fair to say. Pleasurable movement is one of the things that helps you get back to normal movement. So if you can make this make sense and feel good, it's probably going to be one of the first and most well-motivated things that you're going to do in an exercise program. But now my question becomes, if, you've, if you're having someone who's just had some sort of back surgery, um, might they have a lot of fear and trepidation around that, given that it may be an area where that was painful before, whether they're, they're having refer pain through the pelvis or down the leg or any kind of other symptoms. So how do you as the therapist help that patient, one, get over that fear, and two, make that pleasurable again? Because maybe it wasn't pleasurable before. That, that's a great question. Um, and again, we, we, we do go back to the what are they allowed to do and what are they not allowed to do. So a lot of times after surgeries, people will be given um, lifting restrictions, mm -hmm. like things you're not supposed to do with your arms. And if you're not supposed to lift more than a gallon of milk, then you start to wonder, so, okay, doctor, is it okay if I'm supporting myself on my hands and knees during sex, yes or no? And that's where we get the doctor involved, the surgeon involved, and make sure that, because um, a lot of times they're like, eh, a gallon of milk, whatever. And you're like, but I have a kid who's 40 pounds. Is that okay? Eh, maybe. Some say yes, some say no. Um, so finding out very specifically what the surgical restrictions are. Because I don't want to disagree with the doctor on that. We're going to be respectful. But then once, once that's cleared, I would actually ask a lot of questions to the patient as to what was uncomfortable before. And how is that feeling now in general? Because a lot of times when you're having a back situation bad enough to result in a fusion, which again, hopefully isn't happening too often anymore. Right, or any other surgical procedure of the back. Of the yeah. back. Um, I would, as long as they're allowed to move, we start easing into it. And, and there are positions that put less stress um, depending on their preferred movement. This is funny. Sarah and I are like backwards tonight. I'm going to talk about preferential movement patterns. Directional preference? Uh, um, that you, you can do that. If flexion feels better, then set it up so that you are more flexed mm -hmm. than extended. If extended makes you feel better, then do that. Um, side lying is always an option. There's, there's a lot. There's a lot of options. If you can move. And, and the thing I would remind patients, so like if they're having a restriction as to they're not supposed to be flexing their spine. All right, guess what? If your knees are to your chest, your spine is flexing. So you have to take that into consideration that you might be being still here, but if you bring your knees to your chest, you, you need to be mindful of that. Mm -hmm. And I mean, always let pain be your guide. If it hurts, don't yeah. do it. Sex is Pay never attention. supposed to hurt. It's supposed to feel amazing. So, um, Okay. All right. Um, how about Jason? You got nothing? 
Got nothing. I All think right. they covered it very well. <laughs> okay. That should feel good. <laughs> yeah. Drop the mic. <laughs> Done. Okay. So um, what about, uh, let's see, hip replacements, back surgery, I mean knee replacements. I did talk to someone recently that had a, a clavicular fracture. Uh-huh. That was pretty easy. Don't put weight through your shoulders. Okay, yeah, that's easy. So, like a shoulder surgery and thing. I had shoulder surgery, and believe me, for six weeks, you're not thinking about it because you're, you know, not feeling the best. So, that, but that's just from personal experience. Um, (laughs) I mean, not that, right? Wait, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's personal experience because I had a shoulder surgery, and you just don't feel. You're not feeling your best. Not feeling frisky. No. Um, Well, here's a question, which brings me to, let's say you just had surgery. You're not feeling frisky, but your partner is. So what's a good way to talk to your partner about the fact that maybe this is not a good time for you and to explain that without, like, hurting someone's feelings? The big size from both Sarah and I. I mean, that's a good one. And honestly, that's where I would probably not discourage um, asking the doctor and going, like, really, what should I be doing? And being able to go to the partner who hopefully loves and cares for their partner and says, look, this is what's going on. Right now, this isn't a thing. Uh Um, Now, if both partners would like to have sex, then, then it's time to sit down and be like, all righty. So here's our options. This is absolutely out because of the situation right now. Let's brainstorm. And I would, I would actually probably suggest the partner coming in mm-hmm. and, and having a little powwow. We'd use yoga bolsters in practice and, and just make sure that the suggestions would be something feasible that they would want to do and that they wouldn't hate doing. Okay, great. Good answer. All right. Uh, final surgery. So not me. Ma- ma- Maybe not an orthopedic surgery. Well, I guess it's partly orthopedic. But let's say you had um, a heart surgery. Let's say you had open heart surgery. <laughs> let's say you had a stent put in. Um, and I say open heart surgery because they still have to go through the through the, the clavicle. Sternum. So it's still or sternum. Sorry. So it's still orthopedic in nature. But what do you do in that situation? There are actual guidelines for that. Um, and I mean, Sarah, you just get to run this tonight. I love it. Because no. um, Sarah did a talk at the last um, CSM with Megan LaHart on just this topic. We, we did. And there, I mean, the very, the very first thing, and, and they actually say it on the Viagra commercial, commercials, you need to make sure that your heart <laughs> is, is healthy enough to have intercourse. It is, um, and I am blanking on the various uh, cardiovascular guidelines. Megan has a bunch of them. I'm happy to share some of the references um, that she used in our talk um, regarding how healthy your heart needs to be and the tolerance it needs to have for those activities. Well, how would one know how 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 healthy their heart is if if you just had a heart surgery you're probably better be doing a little bit of cardiovascular rehab and they will do a stress test they will do a cardiovascular function test Mm -hmm. where they'll be able to say like all right so you're here you need to be here before sex is a go however i will say take this opportunity to say you need to say that's one of your goals um, most of it, most goals in PT, you know, it's like, can you walk to the grocery store? And as important as getting food from the grocery store is, if one of your goals is to have sex, you need to make sure you say it. Right, because this speaks to what Jason said earlier, is that, that there is a lot of 
assumption that just because I think that someone came out and said, if you're over 40, you're not having sex anymore, which I hope is so not true. Um, that <laughs> <laughs> That's just wrong. Cheers to but, that. But there is, um, there is a need for the people. <laughs> I'm going to keep going here. Um, yes. The, um, there's a need for people to, to really push that in their own care and really push what their goals are because I think there's too many people who assume, oh, you know, you're old, you're not interested. And that's not true. I think moderate intensity exercise, like walking somewhere, is a lot different than the high intensity, short-ish duration that <laughs> so high that, intensity no. interval training. <laughs> right, that that sex can represent. So I think those are very different cardiovascular demands, and I think you have to be know that your patients are ready for that kind of demand. And and walking to a store is a very different cardiovascular challenge, especially for older adults. And it, it should be part of the cardiac rehab program, as far as understanding metabolic needs mm -hmm. and knowing yeah. that you're. Um, have built up a capacity for them, but not EKG monitored sex. No. I don't know, but with the new, with you know all with of Fitbit. the, the <laughs> Fitbits and things like that, you could um, you could wear a pulse sock between Fit between Fitbit and a, a CPAP, mm -hmm. you could get all sorts of data. Yeah. Well, it, so turned on right now. <laughs> but, well, and that was actually part of the talk as well. Is you know there's like LVADs and there's uh, like O2 needs, and it's just one of those things where you know, if you know you're going to have increased demand in oxygen and you need that and you're on oxygen, you pump that baby up if you're going to be active. Uh, and Megan told actually a great story that I'm going to very much shorten and probably butcher. But, you know, that that when they there's a patient who's discussing that and the husband would all of a sudden go upstairs and turn his oxygen up to 10 and the wife would be like turning it back down. So, he, you know, he he knew that if he was going to have sex, he needed to turn it up. And then she politely turned it down. Um, but it's good to know what you need, you know, to stay alive. If we go over into the, the like, external precautions and stuff like that, that's where I would completely agree with the more passive situation of, okay, I'm going to not move my arms at all, and you can mm -hmm. do whatever you need to do because um, there's usually not issues below the waist. And do you guys find that doctors talk about this with these patients? No. So if... There's a lot of head shaking here. So does it behoove you as the physical therapist then to get the doctor on board with this? Do you contact the doctor about this? Is this something that should be a team approach? What, what do you think? Back when I worked in cardiac rehab world, um, yes, you get the doctor involved. I don't see that population now, but if I did, I would get the doctor involved. Yeah, and I would actually, I'm, this is just kind of my personal opinion of of practice is it's really important to get the patient involved too. So I'm not going to call your doctor and right. ask for permission to you have for you to have sex. <laughs> this needs to be a, a situation. I, as a healthcare provider, will support you in speaking with your doctor. I'm happy to make notes in our notes and speak with them on the phone. But if you have questions or concerns that are like that medical in nature, you've got to talk to your doctor okay, or find so, a doctor you can talk to. So encourage your patient to speak to their physician so you don't have to be the middleman and, and God forbid have some sort of game of telephone going on, right? Correct. So that, you know, it's going from you to the patient and, and we know that things can get distorted, you know, even, even with the, the best of intentions. So having the patient involved uh, having them contact their physician, going by whatever, for whatever surgery it is, going by whatever guidelines there is. And you may have to call the doctor, as a, as a therapist, you may have to call the doctor and ask what those guidelines might be. 
Well, we need to do that after any abdominal surgery. Um, certainly after any pelvic surgery is those tissues still need to heal and mm -hmm. they can't necessarily tolerate the pressure and shearing forces. Mm -hmm. So you have to know what the, um, what the precautions are and, and follow them. But okay. ultimately, increased heart rate and, and musculoskeletal activity helps with healing. Okay. Oh, and what about after you give birth? You know, because I feel like there's so many questions around, let's say you had like a regular, regular vaginal birth. Um, <laughs> Define that. <laughs> well, you know, you didn't have a C-section. The baby came out the vajayjay like normal, <laughs> but not like out the belly through a, a, a C-section. So let's take regular, I'll call it quote unquote regular birth first. So let's say you gave birth and now what? Um, I, I, I have <laughs> twice. Um, typically in the first 24 hours, that's not happening. Um, but there are, are individual variances. Um, there's, there's a saying that, that childbirth is a traumatic event. Um, it's, it's certainly a rapid change in, in body, um, over the, the birthing process, which for some people is hours and other people's days. Um, so there's a recovery time after that. Even if we just thought of it like a sprained ankle, you might not be terribly interested in using that part aggressively for a couple weeks. Um, but in the absence of muscle tearing or um, episiotomies that are requiring healing time uh, or any other avulsions or things that can happen in normal childbirth, um, it's comfort. It, it is, and it's it's really interesting because um, I think it's safe to say, again, as a woman who's not given birth, is that your body is, your body, it changes over the 10 months you're pregnant, and then it changes dramatically in one day, and your physical demands change dramatically in the day they hand you the kid and send you home. Um, it, it really should be not awful. Um, <laughs> But it's funny because there's like this six weeks, like you do your six week checkup in America and then they're like, you're clear to have sex. And a lot of women are like, what the hell are you talking about? And there's a lot of different things that go along with that. Um, but like Sandy said, it really, it shouldn't hurt. However, it probably is going to be different. And because of hormonal changes, especially if you're breastfeeding, um, there's a lot of things that are different. What kind of things? Uh, well, the hormones make you drier. So you might have to use oh, okay. lube for the first time in your life. But also at the same time, you, I mean, those muscles have just been like, I mean, there's people who say there's nothing on the face of the planet that's supposed to stretch that much, yet it does. And we live. It's amazing. Um, but it, so it, it takes some time for that to start to feel better. And, and sensation changes um, because the, it can, it, it can, it can get, well, it, it can either not change or it can change to where it is more sensitive and more interesting or um, less sensitive and things that used to be pleasurable now feel like nothing. Um, so it's really a rediscovering of what this new body is and what it likes. Um, sometimes that's best done by yourself uh, and your partner can join in later um, because it can be really confusing and very much change your, your sense of self, um, which is a huge thing. But, but I do think it comes down to once you reintroduce sex to your life after having a baby, um, is that if, if you have questions or concerns, 
that actually pelvic floor therapists can help a lot. Um, I just saw a gal seven weeks postpartum, um, and she was doing fantastic. But because, so this is kind of interesting, because of feelings of prolapse, she seemed to have de developed kind of almost like a clenching of the pelvic floor, and her first attempt at sex was uncomfortable. So as a therapist, I'm going, all right. So one, I examined her. She doesn't appear to have any prolapse whatsoever, but she's worried about it. She tried to have sex. Uh, at seven weeks, I'm not sure how great I'd feel. Mm, so that's kind of a wild card. And so what we did is, and then we checked pelvic floor function. And once we checked it out, and I, I, couldn't, I couldn't observe a prolapse in any kind, had her actually go work out and come back, and still couldn't find any, uh, worked on pelvic floor relaxation, came back two weeks later, sex was fine, working out was fine. It was just kind of a recalibration and knowing she's okay. And that's really all I did. I like that word recalibration. I think that's a, that is a really great way to say that. Okay. So let's talk about kind of the opposite end of the spectrum from, you know, those childbearing years to where you are no longer in your childbearing years and you're a little older. Um, and like Define we find tonight as 40. Yeah, <laughs> it's not 40. Let's say older adults, like, I don't know, 65 and older or something, like the Medicare crowd. 65-year-olds going, mm-mm. So well, I asked... I'm, I don't mean old. I mean just <laughs> older. There is no... There is no yeah. There, yeah, there's no polite way to say that. Um, that some female comics did a beautiful job with that. Um, but... Uh, <laughs> I ask all of my patients, as I said earlier, if they're um, sexually active, and um, the oldest, I, I used to say the age of this, but then I had a HIPAA training thing and says I can't, I, all I have to say is over 85, I think is what I get to say, um, is, was a, a lady who told me, um, she was coming to me for a hip issue, and I asked if she was still sexually active, and she said she was, but it was getting harder to find partners. Um, and I love that. She's my, my top end of my confidence interval of how um, active and enthusiastic a human can be well into the over 85 range. Um, I think that we put false limits on it. Okay, so if, if you are that older adult and you are seeing someone who's, I don't know, 65, 70 or older... And like we talked earlier in the podcast today, you want to broach the subject and not be, you know, bashful about it. But let's say they're telling you, oh, I am having issues. Or what are some things that I need to look out for now that I'm a little bit older? So, Jason, I'll go to you on this one. So, I mean, I think... Older adults are very under-recognized as far as a lot of diseases, especially sexually transmitted diseases. So, um, so I have some statistics from some articles. I mean, if you look between 2007 and 11, older adults had a 31% increase in the, the rate of chlamydia infections and 52% in syphilis. And people 50 and over are 27% of HIV diagnoses in the United States. So there's a lot of things that you would really want to pay attention to. And these, these rates, even in really conservative areas like, you know, retirement communities in Arizona, um, kind of mirror where older adults are. So there's a lot of statistics that suggest that older adults are very susceptible to sexually transmitted diseases, yet only 5% of them are screened routinely under mm -hmm. Medicare programs for this. So. Even though it's free, Even correct? Even though it's free. And so 
as the therapist, if you're asking these patients, are you sexually active? Are you then also asking, are you using protection? Do you Mm -hmm. ask that question? I do. Mm -hmm. Uh, I ask them um, what, what, because questions are really tricky. So I don't, um, I don't make any judgment of, of who they might be sexually active with, or even if it's with anyone else, mm-hmm. or how many others that might be with. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I just phrase the question of, are you still sexually active, which sort of assumes they ever were. Sometimes mm-hmm. I get in trouble with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I say, what kind of protection are you using? Mm-hmm. Because if you phrase the question like that, it assumes that they are using some sort of protection which I want that thought in their head um, mm. because some people think erroneously that just because they can't get pregnant that they're mm. they don't need to or wear. can't get someone right. pregnant that there's no risk yeah. and that's not true so statistically 6% of sexual encounters of people 60 and older um, include use of condoms versus 40% in the college age population and a lot of that is the education that our older adult population got about. They didn't have sex ed. They didn't put condoms on bananas. They didn't have, they didn't have that kind of education. You know, if they were in the military, they were told to avoid ladies of the night and use condoms if they were going to frequent ladies of the night at uh, ports of call and, um, yeah, and wrap them up and. You know, yeah, yeah, it is romantic. <laughs> and you know, so and older adults who use Viagra and, and other, uh, you know, sexually enhancing drugs are six times less likely to use condoms than men with their in their twenties. So huh. there's a lot there's a lot to be said about just the the either under education or under recognition of the risks that older adults have for them for these kinds of concerns. And so again, kind of phrasing that, how what what are you using? Mm-hmm. Because um, it often spawns a conversation of, I will like that either I had a vasectomy, that's not a, an issue, or I can't get pregnant, and then I get to have a conversation of those statistics, mm-hmm. but not as eloquently phrased. And would you actually, is it good for a therapist to know those statistics that Jason just said, to be able to tell those to your older adults? I mean, do you bring that up? I would say I, I wouldn't worry so, so much about the, the numbers. I mean, you need to know that it's a thing. Um, and not having a baby, uh, I think that actually we were talking about it earlier and it was said very well that really pregnancy was like the, the dread fear back in the day. But, and you know, STDs, you know, kind of second, you know, as long as you can't get pregnant, STDs, we can deal with that. Um, it's important to know that it's a thing. It's important to know that it's free to get tested. If, you, if you're on Medicare, and if it's not on Medicare, you should not worry about the cost and get it done, mm-hmm. um, because it's a thing. And, and you, you just a reminder. And remembering that STDs can have manifestations that we can see as physical therapists. You know, so pelvic health therapists will obviously see those things, but uh, a geriatric therapist, you know, gait disturbance could easily be, you know, not super commonly, but it could be the result of tertiary syphilis. Yeah, and, and some um, cognitive uh, odd abnormalities that, that don't seem to make sense and don't seem to follow something that you would think, it, it could be an STD. And is this something that you're bringing up with all of your patients, regardless of diagnosis? Are you asking them or? Well, I, I ask about sexual activity, but I just keep that in the back of my head. But mm-hmm. that's my population that I work with right. is with people with pelvic issues of all ages. So, And, and I know that we kind of touched upon this in, in our first podcast um, a couple of months ago, but 
you know, when you're talking about older adults, what if you get into that population of, of older adults um, who maybe are declining in mental function? Um, so how do you approach that with the older adult, uh, with the family, with wh whomever the caregiver is? What is that conversation like? I mean, I would say, you know, that is probably one of the biggest issues that are facing like long-term care and assisted living facilities is the proliferation of sexual activity and how to protect residents that have genuine cognitive dysfunction and are unable to consent versus those who have just general age-related declines in memory and cognition who enjoy and want to participate in sex. And, and facilities often have blanket rules for those kinds of things that are either very anti-sex uh, I think you guys touched on that in the last podcast mm -hmm. that you did. Um, but, I mean, dementia has a lot of concerns. Like, hypersexuality is a big concern in dementia. And there's often been case studies of um, people with dementia partnering up with other people besides their spouse because they've forgotten about their spouse. And facilities can be held liable for, for those kinds of situations if they think that there's been a situation where that person's been taken advantage of. So it's a real legitimate issue. Um, I was speaking to someone um, around here the, a couple weeks ago. She works with some nursing homes, and they have a, a room set aside for, uh, I can't think of any other way to say it than casual hookups, um, which, and I was like, what does it have? Does it have a bed? She said, no, it's sort of a sofa. But, but they have acknowledged that that's going to happen, and they have a a safe place. Um, I did ask her what kind of, you know, do they do they take any consideration of that? And she said that's an ongoing issue of how do you tell what's uh, what's okay and who's okay enough to make that decision. And and it's hard because you don't want to be uh, paternal about it, mm -hmm. and you want to respect people's individual rights and ability to make um, fundamental decisions, but mm -hmm. at the same time hard to make sure people aren't being taken advantage of. And then families get involved and might not uh, agree with the decision. Yeah, well, and I, I, so, so first of all, consent. Please link to the T in consent video. Um, it, so consent for any kind of sexual contact is very important. And when you get into consent, I think it's interesting that we make a really big deal, as we should, about sex and content and consent and mental ability to make that decision but there's likely especially if they're I feel like if they're in some kind of assisted living or nursing home situation there's a lot of things that should be of concern if they're having these cognitive issues um, so I'd like to think that if sex is the thing that sets it off that we're doing whatever necessary tests are happening whatever legal things that are necessary to be happening to make sure that consent is in the right place um, across the board, I feel like it's weird to single out sex as the thing we need to worry about consent because um, if they don't if they don't have the cognitive ability to take care of themselves, that's bigger than sex. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So definitely yeah. yes for sex, but it needs to be a conversation, and you need to make sure it's all coming together. I think. So there's some suggestions from there's an article I have, and maybe you know, I'll have Karen put it yeah, in the I'll show link notes. It up. 
um, that there's some decisional ability kind of questions that facilities are kind of starting to go through with patients on a case-by-case -case basis to say, is this patient able to consent to sexual activity? And can they communicate choice and understanding of the choice to have sex, appreciation of the consequences, which may be STDs, probably not unwanted pregnancy in most long-term care residents, um, and communicate reasoning and rationale um, and then they have to have an awareness of the relationship, so know who their partner is, know that the partner is or isn't their spouse, <laughs> aware of who's initiating sexual contact, and then state the level of intimacy to which they're comfortable. And those are some guidelines that are, you know, if patients can do those things, then that's the guidelines that, that have been suggested. That would work well for most teenagers, too. <laughs> I was going to say, that's but some of those questions would be hard for maybe me to answer some days. Like, if you ask me right now what I'm thinking I'm open to, if you ask me two weeks from now, I might have a different opinion. It depends on my situation. Um, so, yeah, so I, I, I think that, that that's that actually makes me very happy. Yeah, and we'll I'll put that in the show notes. Um, so if you're, because, you know, there are a lot of therapists who are working in long-term care facilities. Um, so I think that it's important for them to acknowledge that this might be happening. And regardless of, uh, let's say, if the person doesn't have those cognitive deficits, I think some of the things that we said earlier about uh, maybe post-surgical mm -hmm. might be a good thing to brush up on if you're the therapist. Uh, and post-stroke post-stroke um because that you know you it's a it's a bilateral bilateral activity and now half of it's not working like you thought um that that's a a, a reorganization that needs to occur yeah absolutely and uh what about i don't know if any of you have worked with people after spinal cord injury um i have years and years ago have. so i don't know the 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 so i i will I hesitate to give an answer for that because the the research and the the augmentation that is available now that wasn't available even 10 mm -hmm. years ago is mm -hmm. astounding. Okay. So yeah. there is so much more than when I worked with it. Yeah, I would just say know that there's options and if if there's things that you would like to do um, or if you have a spinal a patient who has a spinal cord injury and is asking you these things or you get up the guts to actually ask them about sexual function or what they would like to be doing. Um, there's tons of options out there now, and there's just no reason. I mean, between medications and devices, mm -hmm. and there, there's just so many options. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. So, I mean, we have a couple of minutes here, but um, is there anything that you guys wanted to add that maybe we didn't touch upon yet? Well, yeah, that's what we're talking about. So. Well, I think we're talking about question, though. No. Oh, about the bladder. Which one? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I did have a question. Okay, sorry. One last question. Um, you could have asked it. Um, so, so one last question. So let's say you've had a cystitis or a UTI, and it's, it's taken a while to resolve. You've been on antibiotics that didn't work, and then you had to go on another set of antibiotics, and maybe that didn't work. And at any rate, you've had it for like well over a couple of weeks. So can there then be issues, whether that be with the bladder or the pelvic floor, that may think, that may kind of keep you thinking, why do I have this stupid UTI and why won't it go away? 
when in fact you don't really have the UTI, but there just might be adaptations that have happened because you had this pesky little bugger. I think that's a that's a beautiful explanation of, of what happens and how it happens. Um, the uh, yes, and it, it's a sensitization of the nervous system, similar to conversations we have about pain, uh, where the messages that you're getting about the the state and the capacity of your bladder are are being misinterpreted, and um, the expectations are unnaturally low. And, and what we do in therapy is to help um, correct the errors and get the, the expectations of capacity back to normal. So what does that mean in actual words? <laughs> hey, that those people, are good words. That people would understand. Can you break those that down to make words. it a little bit more understandable? Uh, that's my sh- that was my shorthand. Go, oh, Sarah. All right. Um, so... So we actually we have a video, a couple of videos that that kind of go into more detail, but basically, um, your so when it comes to feeling what you feel as far as when you need to go to the bathroom, um, it's one of those things that you can condition. So when everything's working well, the pelvic floor is kind of hanging out doing its thing that it's supposed to be doing, bladder's relaxed as it fills up, go to the bathroom, relax your pelvic floor, it empties, everyone's happy you actually get a couple of urges before you like have to go. And we've all had that where we're like, oh, I kind of need to go pee, but I'm 20 minutes from the house. And you're like, meh, when everything's working well, you're like, meh, and you get home and you kind of forgot you even had to go. Sometimes after a UTI, there's a couple of things that happen. Once or the cystitis, you end up with something that hurts. So when you go to the bathroom, it hurts. One of the things we know is the first thing our pelvic floor does when we hurt it's, it tightens. It, it tightens up. And so it can kind of, in some people, we see it's kind of kicked into a protective clench, for lack of that Kind fair? of like if you had back pain and your back muscles tightened up. Yep. Right. Yeah, you're kind of, you're bracing, you're kind of waiting for it to hurt. Um, and then a lot of times our brain will be like, maybe we'll feel better if we can go pee. And I kind of feel like I got to go. And so you go, even though your bladder's a third of the way full. So you go to the bathroom and you pee a little bit. You don't necessarily feel better, but now there's this connection of, wait, if I, I did have to pee, I didn't really have to, I didn't feel much, but you can almost start to train yourself to go more often. So you get kind of this hiccup in the system of a pelvic floor that's not really contracting and relaxing the way it could or should. You have a bladder that's like, I don't even know what you want to want me to do. Um, and then it's kind of giving you this, it can end up giving you this constant feeling of needing to go, mm-hmm. even when your bladder's empty, even after you go pee. And it's really frustrating. So then you go to the bathroom and you're like, I really got to go. And now my bladder's not emptying all the way. Oh, it's empty. You went pee 15 minutes ago. It's empty. It just doesn't feel like it anymore. So I think that's back to kind of that recalibration of um, taking a step back. If you're clear of infection, a really good pelvic floor therapist who can have you complete avoiding log accurately, especially if you can take the time to actually measure your output, holy cannoli, like it'll be so much better um, than any medication you can take. And it takes a little bit of work to kind of redo the calibration. So you're like, oh, I don't have to go right now, I'm okay. And so would you put the patient on a schedule that says, oh, I want you to go every two hours, even if you feel it within an hour, or no? totally varies because what you want to do is you I would suggest 
that what would be looked at is how miserable are you trying to make it to that two hours? Do you end up leaking? Um, is this completely distractible? I have, I usually have people do voiding logs without changing a thing. Drink mm -hmm. what you drink, record it, pee when you want to pee, record it, let me know how bad you want to go when you do go. And then we kind of look at their natural intervals where they are right now. Um, and then start to make little changes. Cause the like what would be oh. an example of a little change? Uh, well, I would ask him, did you really have to pee four times in the hour before you left the house? And I would, I would, um, it's actually something from Bronnie Thompson that I learned as far as what do you think you could manage? So if we look at this four times an hour is kind of a lot. Do you think any of those could change? And just kind of start that because another thing is, is it almost becomes at least the clinical observation. I have no evidence, um, is really that it, it's, it's something that just peeing, peeing and pooping and sex, they're all very basic bodily functions and we can start to forget about it so if I asked any of you how often you peed today you'd have to think really hard and I bet you 10 bucks you'd be wrong with whatever you guessed so just kind of recording it right it's hard <laughs> so if you just record it and you have like a little a little kind of just like maybe you would keep a pain check. log or a diet or, or like or um, an, uh, a diet log or what you're eating. What are they, a food diary. Right, because you eat mindlessly. You can yeah. actually absolutely go pee mindlessly. And I'll never forget I had a, a lovely lady I saw several years ago who I in the in initial val, I go, how often do you go to the bathroom to urinate? And she goes, four times a day. I said, excellent. I'm going to have you fill this out anyway. And she went, went to the bathroom 13 times before lunch. <laughs> she didn't even know. And it was just a really nice slap in the face for me anyway that what we perceive we're doing and what we're actually doing when it comes to bodily functions can be skewed up here yeah. in our heads. Yeah. I've never forgotten how many times I've had sex in a day, though, if that's a basic bodily function. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. I'm trying yep. to think. Like, now you, now not, you got me thinking. I'm telling, I'm telling you it's not 13 times in a morning, though. <laughs> Before lunch. Slacker. The <laughs> Loser. Now, now I'm thinking, yeah, no. Um, the <laughs> I, Why do I know that number? Um, not yours. Fine. Um, <laughs> The, really? The, so we start, what Sarah said, we, we do the bladder diary, we find out where they are now, and then we find out, well, we know that a normal human bladder takes between two and four hours, how's that for variability, to fill. Um, and, and you should be able to sleep through the night without getting up. Until you're over 65, 65. and then getting up one to two times is normal. Um, and, and then we just that's classic physical therapy. We know what's normal. We know where they are. We set up a training program to get them back to normal. Um, and, and timed voiding by, by the time on the clock is not something I'm a fan of unless you've got like a spinal cord injury or mm -hmm. some neurogenic Cogn co cognitive issues. Cognitive like issues. Really there are times that that's really good. Um, in the absence of those, then it's a graded exposure to tolerance of fill of the bladder. So it's more of a, a timed voiding by how long since the last time you went and to try and systematically and gradually increase the tolerance to fill. But also looking at the other things that impact that. So, um, you know, there are there are bladder irritants that can make you feel like you need to go more than you usually would. There are, again, there's triggers. I have had people literally train themselves unknowingly to have to pee every time they saw a bathroom. 
and you know or have to pee every time they leave the house so it that's why it's really important to i think do a voiding log or a bladder diary and identify those things because each person you know you can have 10 people who go pee 13 times before lunch some are because they really have an overactive bladder some because they just do because they can some because they drank 14 liters of coffee and some because they're nervous about leaving the house and, and those are all different interventions. And those times when, when, when you have kids, you tell them, you know, we're leaving, just go potty because I don't want you to stop on the way. You're really training that. You're, you're poorly training a bladder, and we are what we practice. So you really only should pee when you actually need to. Okay. Well, that's fair. That's fair. And I think there's a lot of good tips there for uh, physical therapists just to maybe begin to have that conversation and then if you're not really trained as a pelvic therapist and that might be a good time to say hey listen I, I have a great referral for you and I think that you should probably work with this person yeah no I, I love that and I, I just like people knowing that there are options out there mm -hmm. so if in the absence of infection if you think you have a UTI please go get that checked mm -hmm. but if this is your 14th UTI this month and mm -hmm. you keep testing negative ask for a referral to pelvic PT yeah okay so on that note we are this time we're really gonna wrap things up <laughs> because I, I totally forgot to ask that question um, but before we do I just want you all to kind of leave the listeners with kind of a, a final thought um, on the episode today so who would like to start I'll do two sentences right. only pee when you need to and have as much sex as is comfortable okay uh, if peeing, pooping, or sex aren't a pleasurable experience, um, there, there is help. Just ask. Remember that sex is an ADL too. And for your older, <laughs> <laughs> for your older adult patients, always ask about it and, and really take the steps that you need to address it. If that's referral, if that's education, if that's um, you know, a, a discussion with them and their partner together to find a way for them to enjoy that activity together. All right. Clearly, if you're in a group of physical therapists and you want to find out who the pelvic floor therapists are, say that. Say, hey, I think sex is an ADL too. And all the pelvic health therapists will be like, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you guys so much for doing this part two. I guess we'll have to do part three in like, I don't know. In the autumn. In the autumn. In, or in December when you will miss autumn. You can definitely oh, no, in November. December. Oh, you won't be here. You won't be in New York. I won't be in New York. Ah, Are you darn it. No. no, no, no. Anyway, people, people don't need to hear this on, on the podcast. Anyway, um, thank you all for listening to part two of our sex discussion. And I know we definitely threw out a lot of different resources. So if you go to podcast.healthywealthysmart.com, you can find all of those resources in the show notes for, for this episode. Um, and if you want to find me on Twitter, you can find me at Karen Litzy NYC. Sandy is at Sandy Hilton PT. And Sarah at Sarah Haig PT. And Jason at J. Ray Falvey. All right. So everybody, thanks so much for listening. Have a great week and stay healthy, wealthy, and smart.